what? She's an RD and she has a day program? You can do that? Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders to those of us who have been around for a while. I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet with wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. Hello, and welcome to The Seasoned RD. Today, we get to talk with Melanie Rogers, who's a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor in New York. And she is founder and CEO of Balance Eating Disorder Treatment Centers. So besides having this totally rad Aussie accent, she is just a very awesome dietitian in this space of eating disorders. So those of you who either have a lived experience, she talks a little bit about her own lived experience with an eating disorder, or as a dietitian, we are the only healthcare professional that spends seven years of training in nutrition. And so for someone who comes out and, and feels the aura or the energy and tells you, you need to have celery juice, you know, are you can listen into how we feel about who's going to take the place of the RD if we don't um, stand up for what we actually know and what we can do. So I hope you enjoy this interview with Melanie. I did want you to know that her program is now back in person for their day program. It's a hybrid and their IOP, their intensive outpatient program will also be open by the time this is released or very shortly after. Welcome, Melanie Rogers. We are really happy to have you today. Thanks so much, Beth. It's a pleasure to be here. But to just start us off, mountains or beach? Oh, beach. Where, where's your ideal beach? <laughs> Truthfully, right now, <laughs> the Bahamas. Ooh, <laughs> nice. You answered that one pretty quickly. So, yeah, I was there recently for a getaway. I know that's a little uh-huh. bit not on the down low right now, but I just, <laughs> uh, the beach is where I go to restore. And, uh, and it's two and a half hours from New York. I couldn't believe it. And I found myself in this little paradise. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Australia's a little bit far right now to get to the beach. So I have been from Australia. So I grew up with, you know, beach being a part of our, you know, our lifestyle really. So uh, yeah, beaches for sure. Okay. So I'm curious about your answer to this next one then. So breakfast or dinner, I guess it might be different for you coming from Australia. I don't know. I don't know. I'm a big breakfast fan. Okay. <laughs> love my coffee, love my breakfast. That's that's the popular answer. So maybe we don't vary too much. Yeah. Yeah. Breakfast is a good is a good start of the day. And sometimes it's about the type of food that we have. And sometimes it's just about that it's a it's a great start. Yes. All right. And last kind of icebreaker, audiobook or paper book? Oh, paper book. 
I love the tactile touch, the turning of the pages, the even the smell of a, a, a the print book. You know, yeah. um, all of that is. I love going into Barnes and Noble, for example, and touching mm. books. Oh, and- I love the smell of Barnes and Noble or any yes. bookstore that we haven't been able to been be in for the past year or yeah. so, and we're starting to open back up. So, yeah. Oh, forward to right. So much to look forward to. It is so much to look forward to. And you know, this podcast is really about bringing in highly seasoned clinicians along with newer clinicians and that seasoning. And it seems like no matter what type of person we're interviewing, the the handheld book really carries so much. You know, Mm -hmm. we've got the internet, we've got audiobook, we've got Kindles and electric, you know, ebooks, but now it's like actual handheld calendars and books. Yes. All right. Well, I'm going to take you back and hopefully this is not too traumatizing to ask this question of you, but you're a registered dietitian. Yes. Yes, I am. Um, Back to exam day. (laughs) What do you remember? Was it a number two pencil or a keyboard? A keyboard. Okay. Yes. Yes. They just brought that in, which was great. Yes. What do you remember about that day? I remember being a little bit uh, nervous about just making sure I got the keyboard right and I knew how to, you know, interact with the interface on the computer. And I also remember being stumped on one of the questions. <laughs> but then I was, but then I thought, you know what, as long as I, at that point, even though I'd studied very, very hard, it was like, as long as I pass, that's all I need to know. And the <laughs> beauty of it being on the computer is you got your results instantly at the end, <gasps> which was so great. Oh yes, gosh. yes, you didn't have to wait. Yeah. So that yeah. was right. Yeah. Right, right. I'm wondering on that one question, were you able to go back and forth? Do you remember? No, I think that was the that was one of the the difficulties with it. Something that threw me off because I'm a person who likes to go back and reread everything. Uh-huh. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, it was a while ago. I, I do recall that there was, um, yeah, there was an added stress because I couldn't go back and double check. I don't I know if I'm remembering that correctly, but that's at least the narrative I have in my head around that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Abby's shaking her head yes too. Yeah, it's still like that. Still. So a really evil way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't think because not, you know, I don't, yeah, I don't know that I like that format. Yeah. But yeah. Anyway, it is what it is. But but the beauty of it, though, Beth, um, that I was relieved about when the computer, because they'd only just come in taking tests in that manner or offering the testing in that manner, is it meant that you there were more testing opportunities available than just waiting once a year or every half a year. So can That's you imagine exactly. that, Abby? If you graduated, you wouldn't be able to take the exam until a set point in uh. time, months and months away, if not, mm-hmm. you know, the next year so I was really grateful that there wasn't anything that was going to delay me indefinitely to get that to get those letters after your name yes and actually be able to sign your name on your notes and and practice independently and that was something that we learned too yeah that I forgot about that every six months is when you could get it and I was telling Abby that my results came by snail mail and I remember just, you know, how anxious I was. It seemed like weeks. I don't know how long it was. Okay, good. Well, what made you interested in, in nutrition as a field? And then how did you get into eating disorders work? Yeah, well, I, I think like many of us, honestly, I think we were kind of thinking pre-med medicine, 
and I had not even heard of the world of nutrition, let alone becoming a nutritionist when I started um, university, college, doing undergrad in science. But I knew I wanted to do something more preventative, Beth, than medicine, which is much more about treating after the ailments are presented. And what really motivated me to even be thinking along those lines of healthcare was I lost my grandmother at a fairly young age and she died from heart disease in her early 60s. And it really affected me because I was, she was the first member of my family to lose. And so I remember at the time thinking, if I could become a doctor or something, maybe I could help people not die of heart disease in their early 60s. So that was kind of the, the motivation, if you will. And so then it was a matter of searching out for what, was pre- what actually offered preventative career opportunities. And then during college, I was introduced to the idea of a nutritionist as a, as a career path by a friend of mine. And so we decided we were going to pursue that together. So that was how I, I found out about the world of nutrition. And then I, I actually came here to the US from Australia to do my master's degree and my internship and such, just looking for an international opportunity. Aussies tend to have a little bit of that travel fever. Um, so <laughs> we're glad to- you did. <laughs> and I thought I'd just be here for school and I'd go back home and start a private practice, but I fell in love with the city and so stayed here. But one reason I did choose New York over some other locations is knowing back then, well, back then, and sorry, I don't want to offend anyone, but back then there was a lot of talk around the so-called obesity epidemic. Mm-hmm. And, and Australia is certainly not, not sheltered from that as well. And so I thought, well, as a nutritionist, that's, that's a lot of people apparently who are struggling with that. So that would be important for me to work in that area. And so long story short, there is an obesity research center here in New York City. And being a bit of a geek with research, I wanted to be close to the research. And coming from Australia, we don't have, we have research going on, of course, but we don't have the kind of funding that you guys do here. So I wanted to come here and be in New York so I could possibly intern there or even work there, which I was able to do. So, and Beth, this is aging me, but this is when we just, uh, leptin was just discovered. You know, the, the rats, the mice, the leptin thing. Yeah. So, you know, that was pretty, pretty, um, big news 20 years ago and of course we've come a long way since then mm-hmm. um, and so long story short sorry of how I then got into the eating sort of field while I was there at the obesity research center they were actually treating clients for something called binge eating disorder and they had a multidisciplinary team a psychiatrist a therapist an rd an md and a sports physiologist and they had a whole program around binge eating disorder and again guys we only got the diagnostic code for binge eating disorder in 2013 so this is 13 years before that and i was fascinated beth because for me it was the biochemistry, physiological, medical stuff that we're trained in as RDs, but it was also the psychological behavioural piece, which, which was fascinating to me because I, I felt that we needed to understand more about why people did things and not just tell them to do things, right? Yeah. And then yeah. when they don't, we say the client is not compliant, yeah. you know? Oh, dear. Yes. So oh, my ar- gosh. So arrogant, right? So right. Anyway, long story short, I was introduced to binge eating disorder. I fell in love with this eating disorder thing. And then as I learned more about bulimia and more about anorexia, I was just hooked. 
Little did I know because I didn't identify at the time that I actually had had my own eating disorder. I was in very much denial of that. If anything, I just thought I kind of had a problem with food back in the day and over-exercised. I used to, you know, do a lot of marathon running and such, but it was only after I started to learn more about eating disorders and put the pieces together, Beth, that I was like, oh my gosh, I think I had a full-blown eating disorder all those years ago that fortunately because of circumstances, I ended up, you know, getting some, some treatment, but not specifically around the eating disorder. So anyway, that's, that's a lot of information there about how I got into it and my own my own recognition of my own previous history. Yeah. I got chills when you said that you were treating some, they were treating something called binge eating disorder 13 years before it actually even was a diagnosis. And so we talk about evidence-based practice and practice-based evidence and things that like are happening right now, things like maybe orthorexia, And that's not a DSM-5 criteria. So the Diagnostic Statistical Manual is the manual for diagnosis of mental health disorders. And so you you kind of have your foot in a few different areas and orthorexia is one. And also just, you mentioned your your own lived experience. What do you want people to know about that? About orthorexia and... uh... And dietetic students and their own lived experience maybe yes. with an eating disorder? Oh, absolutely. Um, well, I think we know now more and more from the research, um, you know, I'm, I'm teaching a class for the master's level nutrition students at New York University, and we actually are doing a whole, a whole class on orthorexia. And from looking at the research papers on that, Beth, the latest estimates are 65% of nutrition students have orthorexia or orthorexic tendencies, which I think kind of makes sense, a little bit of an occupational hazard, if you will, career hazard, because Mm -hmm. we're usually interested in optimizing people's health through food. And perhaps we overemphasize the importance of food, but nonetheless, that's our focus. So it kind of makes sense to me. And so I've started talking about it with, with my students and saying, listen, you guys are really at high risk of this. All of us are. And I think it's important for us to talk about the so-called white elephant in the room and just, you know, put it out there and and, and have an open discussion about yeah, it. Yeah. How receptive are they to that? That would be hard. It, it was, but I think we've tried to create a really safe space in, in our course, in our class, as far as at the very beginning, giving out trigger warnings. I actually tell them I've had my own lived experience again, and I actually encourage them if they find themselves getting triggered in class with the course content to come to myself and and uh, and my fellow team and uh, and we can also help them get help so you know I know that's awkward because I'm pl- playing a dual role of professor and possibly clinician to support you but I don't know any other way to do it Beth for right now other than trying to trying to create a safe environment and 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 just say if, if you feel you know um you know, and, and it's not, it's again, trying to reserve people's confidentiality, but, you know, it's just like, are you guys surprised by this statistic? They're like, no, no. Okay. <laughs> you know, and I said, you know, you know, you know, has anyone, does, do you know anyone who's had lived experience or, you know, if you want to, if you want to identify and there's certainly no pressure to do so. So I think they're kind of relieved to talk about it. And we actually got emails later from right. some of the students saying, first and foremost, thank you for the trigger warning. No one in our whole academic career has ever given us a trigger warning Mm -hmm. and thank you for talking so openly about this because 
because we're not just here as academics, like we, we're, we're in this current culture of mm-hmm. the thin ideal and, and as nutrition students being uber healthy and Instagram. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you know there's a correlation between Instagram, what you're posting on Instagram and orthorexia? There's some interesting no. stuff around that. So uh, yeah. I have two questions. I mean, yes. um, one is I, I want you to define orthorexia just in general, because some people may have just stumbled upon this. They may be thinking that are just starting a job in the eating disorders field or thinking about it. And so kind of describing what that is. And the other piece I just want to say is that for this podcast, because it is for professionals in my introduction, I do say that we will say numbers. We will talk about specific diets. We will use the word obesity and it's all for learning. So we're not going to censor that because they're professionals, but I really appreciate you offering to your students that this can be hard. There can be triggers or words or activation, things that are going to activate. Thanks, Beth. I think it's disingenuous if we don't. I mean, you know, yeah. So orthorexia, the definition of orthorexia, absolutely uber clean eating or healthy eating to the point that it becomes unhealthy. And so that's what we're seeing is that we're seeing that people get so fixated on making sure each meal is the most perfect meal with the most nutrient bang for your buck, that they're actually getting so obsessive about it that they can end up spending a lot of time and a lot of obsessionality around creating these so-called perfect meals. And what we usually see with orthorexia is there tends to then be a continuation of elimination of certain foods. Mm. So it can start with gluten and lead to and lactose are usually the, the start points. And then it can be more towards vegetarianism and more towards veganism. And then it might be, you know, at its worst, at its worst, excuse me, we've seen clients who are only eating two or three types of food, you know? Mm-hmm. So, so again, there's nothing wrong with being vegetarian or being vegan, but as we know, variety of foods are essential to health. And so if some, if anxiety around foods not being optimally healthy and therefore I'm not going to eat those foods and I'm just living on broccoli and apples or whatever it might be, you can see that there's massive nutrient def- deficiencies that can that can result as well as often significant weight loss to the point of medical complications. So that's what mm-hmm. I mean. It's, it's healthy, healthy to the point it becomes extremely unhealthy. Yeah. Thank I you. have a question off of that. So, and we've talked about this before, but it's almost like a, like a holier than thou perspective. Like I am the cleanest. What are you doing type of deal? And I think that gets confusing to people because individuals want to be, you know, quote unquote healthy, but there's that fine line that you talked about where it becomes a little bit too obsessive, but something that I'm seeing all the time lately, and I'm curious if you two have seen this as well is individuals or patients that I'm working with who all of a sudden think that they have a gluten intolerance or lactose intolerance. And do you think that that's because those foods as of today's fad diet world, those are deemed as bad for you. Do you think that's why we're seeing more of this? Yeah, I think so. And I think also, I think that carbohydrates in general have gotten a a bad rap over the last couple of decades, starting with Atkins and, you know, the reality is when you eat carbohydrates, they make they replenish your glycogen stores. The glycogen stores are your temporary glucose stores in your liver and your muscles that gets you from one meal to the next meal. 
But glycogen, as we know, one molecule of glycogen has three molecules of water attached to it. So it's a very heavy fuel source, albeit temporary. And when you stop eating carbs, you eliminate all your glycogen stores and you eliminate all that extra water. So if you pop yourself on the scale after a couple of days of not eating carbohydrates, you're going to see a significant shift on the scale. And that says to you, carbohydrates are fattening. And without eating carbs, I, I lose weight. So carbohydrates are bad. So I think the gluten piece is an extension of that. That's also started with functional medicine docs kind of coming in there with their take on inflammation and gluten being a molecule that causes inflammation and therefore being kind of, unfortunately, a little bit the, uh, the answer to everything. You know, I was very distressed to go to my doctor who I love and adore and I think is really smart and talented. And I was talking to her about feeling a bit tired lately. You know, I run a business, I've got an eight-year-old, yada, yada. And her suggestion, and I was like, please don't say it. Her suggestion was, what if you took out gluten from your diet? And I, looked oh, at her and I thought, no. oh, no, please don't. No. A, yeah. she knows nothing about it. B, she's a product of our culture. Yeah. And C, I lost respect for her as this really well-revered doctor in New York. Mm-hmm. No, So I think what we're saying, what I want to say is that no one's immune to, to the kind of massive volume of public opinion usually around gluten. But this, this idea of clients coming in saying I'm, I have gluten sensitivity or I'm gluten-free got so bad for us as a as a treatment center that I actually started to question my own training because I was like, am I missing something? I mean, we, we went through, I went through my training 20 years ago. I mean, I keep up with the research of course, but is there something that I just have missed so much so that I reached out to the celiac disease research center here at Columbia university. And I sat down with the director there, Dr. Peter Green, who's a great guy. He happens to be an Aussie as well, as it turns out. Yeah, I didn't know that. And I went to him and I said, Peter, please tell me, am I missing something? Our clients are coming in with these massive reports from their allergy specialists with all these lovely colored graphs, you know, a spiral book, an inch thick. I said, am I missing something with the allergy testing? And he took, he took that and he said, this is what I do with those spiral books. And he took it and he threw it in the trash. Yay. I just have yeah. been through two recently with that. And I was doing some of my own research on the end. So this just confirms. Just confirms exactly. And he was like the biopsy, yada, yada. He did suggest that there may be gluten sensitivity and it could be a very real thing. They call them. And then he called, he has an acronym. It's called PWAGs, people without, allergies to gluten, PWAGs, but people who are avoiding gluten. And you've probably seen Jimmy Kimmel who goes in and says, and, uh, you know, are you avoiding gluten? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, I am. I don't eat gluten. And what is gluten? Um, I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) You know? So it's, it's, and with social media, we have to be so careful, guys, Mm. because the proliferation of the spread of information or misinformation is so amplified with social media. And when you start hearing something from three or four different sources, you start to believe that there yeah. might be some truth to it. So, so that's my take on gluten-free. I can't wrap my mind around these allergy tests still. I don't understand them. I feel like they're always wrong. Why are they coming out with these results? I, I just can't, I don't understand. Well, I think what's happening is the testing that they're doing is not, is not evidence-based testing in the sense of the accuracy 
of what's coming coming back from those tests hasn't been is not validated hasn't been validated so you know what I did because mm. I was like again in this whole research period I went online and took one of those allergy tests just to see what would come back it came back that I was allergic to everything except for maybe air and and it was like this is ridiculous I'm basically allergic to nothing you know so it just gave me a sense of like if our clients are testing with these they're going to believe it because they think it's medical anyway I'm I'm going to the expert experts and taking their advice on on this yeah I had pulled up just within the past week because I've seen two people now recently who have brought me all of this and I can't have I love milk but I can't have dairy anymore and I that says I'm allergic to peanuts but I can eat peanut butter so this this practice and I can include it in the in the show notes too. It's blood testing for sensitivity, allergy, or intolerance to food. And pretty much they're just telling us, be careful. You know, there's, there's a lot of money to be had in, in some of these testing uh, sensitivity testings and physicians should caution patients about the controversy surrounding these testings. So there's position papers as well, but like you said, Melanie, the massive volume of public opinion and the buzzwords of things like inflammation, the, they're, they're everywhere. So you mentioned Instagram and a connection with consumers. Of, yeah. Yeah. What was that study? It was really interesting in that they were showing a correlation between Instagram use and higher rates of orthorexia. And they were actually able to see, again, a correlation between the two because I've also been on Instagram to check out some of these accounts and I've been interviewed about it by a newspaper or a magazine. And if you see some some of the people who post on, on Instagram who seem to have very OCD-like tendencies where they've got everything in perfect containers and it's all colour-coded and their fridges all look immaculate and I'm like, who are you people? And then their meals are perfect. They're actually able to, from from viewing some of these this, this, these images, they're actually able to see a higher correlation with um, that and who their sample was and what they did around it. But uh, I thought that was very interesting. And again, my students were like, oh, yeah, no surprise there. Right, right. (laughs) So they're seeing it. I reminded as you were talking, Melanie, that Marcy Evans had done a session at Fency a couple of years ago, along with a food marketer. And I, you know, I apologies if anyone's offended by the title, but it was about food porn. And so things like on Pinterest that are so perfect, but then you have the fails and that folks that you were just talking about, maybe who have some OCD tendencies or who has that orthorexic tendency is that everything has to be perfect. And when one reminder for me is if you are considered to be orthorexic, that there's a um, if you go and buy salad, if you are looking at a head of romaine and there's a bent leaf, you can't have it in, in certain levels of orthorexia. It's so extreme that it's, it's not perfect. It's ruined. You can't mm. eat it. Mm. 
Yeah, which I think also would would suggest a, a large food bill, Beth. You know, Ooh. I mean, I'm wondering how expensive it would be in order to, you know, the it only has to it can only be organic. So you know, whole foods and you know, and that is a part of it actually that people have reported huge food bills as a result of this pursuit mm. as well. Mm. Mm. And as we and know, then, I mean, it comes from a place of massive anxiety when you think about what what the drivers are there. So not not to blame anyone certainly and wouldn't want anyone to leave from hearing this today with the impression that you know that we're judging people who are displaying these behaviors but it's it's really you know we're seeing it as a manifestation of disordered eating and and anxiety sorry abby you were going to say something well and just just like you're saying on on instagram especially and we have these really big name influencers who are out there and tons and thousands and, you know, even millions of followers and people are seeing like, oh, well, they only do this and they do clean eating and this and this and this. And so you're going to feel terrible about yourself if you're not doing organic or if your fridge doesn't look all crisp and clean or, you know, whatever that might be. It's, it's tough when we have all of this really good nutrition information out there. And then one person with a, a pretty Instagram can kind of skew things the other way. And that's I, a reality. That's a it reality. is the reality. And I've just been turned on to a new podcast. So when you were saying that, Abby, it reminded me of the celery juice guy. He has like crazy number of followers and he considers himself a medical medium. And this, I learned that through this new podcast I'm following and it's called uh, maintenance phase celery juice. Do you have viruses, cysts, cancer? You can cure it with your celery juice. Now, if you do it, it has to be fresh. You have to, you have to rinse it. You have to make sure that there's no extra fibers in it. You can't add lemon juice to like, seriously, he's a medical medium. So he, he receives messages about what this person needs just by having the aura and kind of being near them and, and putting. Wow. Yeah. Um, I think, I think there's another career path for us, Beth. Right. I know. (laughs) Sorry. And and Melanie, when you said that too, I'm just reminded of a dietitian who's been in the field or just in as a dietitian for a long time. And, and when we were talking about eating disorders, she said, well, you know, if, if dietitians don't have weight management, what do they have anymore? So we have celery juice. Clearly. Oh, clearly. Clearly. (laughs) Absolutely. Isn't that, isn't that interesting that that's the comment though, that if we don't have weight management anymore, what do we have? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, I think, I think the research is telling us what we need to be doing, which is health at every size, intuitive eating and helping people get more in touch with biologically what, where their body's willing to hang out at and, you know, and diets fail, 95% of diets fail. And yet we're still trained to administer weight loss plans mm-hmm. i hate to say it but we're behind the science we're as in we are behind as in backward mm-hmm. we are there's there's a lot more research now that tells us that some of our training is time to retire some of our training and update yes. some of our training beth i wonder and what your thoughts are 
I well, I'm I wanted to mention that you and I were talking a little earlier and the anger that our students are are discussing about how they've been trained. And this is not just dietetic students, please. Like just like Melanie said about her own doctor. I had a client yesterday who said her friend went to the doctor who had lost weight because of a medical condition and the doctor immediately said, "Nice job." So there there's so much weight centric training that happens. And Melanie, you're slowly breaking that with the course that you're teaching health at every size. Thankfully, we have that now and we have research to support that we have to and and I, I can say now that we have a weight inclusive toolkit committee of really amazing and diverse dietitians that within the next two to three years will be some required through all dietitian training. Super important, but see how long it takes to, I mean, it's been 20 years, I think in the making that the Natalie, who's in charge of, of pulling this together and getting approval through ASEND really deserves a lot of respect for, for getting this going. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because I know when I did my training 20 years ago, I, I knew it was outdated then. And and also, you know, we, we are still training RDs with a parallel food service piece to it, which I think, I think you know, I'm not running a university. So I understand the idea of census and needing revenue and, and needing to make sure you've got a certain number of, of students to be able to pay for things. But I think it's time for us to cleave that away and and replace those classes with with this relevant stuff and also more entrepreneurial stuff. I mean, RDs want to be out there and have a piece of the health and wellness revenue, which is at least $64 billion that's not going into our pockets. And I don't say that in a necessarily an over-capitalistic way, though we all, you know, have to pay our loans back, but rather we're the experts. We are the food experts, not not Mr. Medical, what is he, medical? <laughs> yeah, juice celery color. juice. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, because those are the people that are filling the gaps mm-hmm. because of because we're not out there saying, hey, listen, we're the food experts and 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 you know, you should be listening to us. So yeah. there's a lot, there's a lot, there's a lot there that we can do. And I'm really excited for the next generation of RDs Mm -hmm. because I think over the next 10 years we'll see some major changes in this area. That's really interesting, your perspective about the food service part, because I can say personally, I was not interested in food service. I know none of my classmates were interested in food service. I know there are dietitians out there, students out there who that's their thing. They want to do that. And thank God we have them. But I would be really curious to see what the percentages are of people who actually get into food service after undergrad, because the, the education we get on that is huge, you know, like maybe equivalent to what we get in clinical practice. So, yeah, yeah that I, I mean, I, I remember on the exam, Abby, you know, 12 gauge can and how much yes. I remember because I'm like, this is- the scoop size and the distance between the aisle, the aisle had to be X wide. And yeah. again, you're right. And so what I'm, what I'm suggesting, and I'm sure it's not the first time this has been suggested, but you know, for those who know they want to go in the food service route, that's great. Have that, that track available, of course. But I think historically, if you think about what we've been trained to do and what service to provide, it's been very much for a hospital career path. Mm-hmm. And in the hospital setting, you're going to have RDs on the floor and you're going to have food service RDs. Unless I'm mistaken, 
taken, Beth, and please, you know, I'd love to hear any history that I'm missing there. But I think now it's a, it's a, it's a bigger, wider world and RDs want to go into private practice and they want to be part of the health and wellness movement and they want to be a lot more entrepreneurial. And, uh, and as I said, if we're, we're the only ones that get this amount of training in nutrition of, of anyone. So if not us, then who? And right. as we're seeing a lot of people who are saying, you know, well, you know, the universe tells me what I should, the client should be eating. And so I'm, I'm, I'm the medium that's giving you that information. I mean, that is, I Ooh, can't cuss on scary. air. I'm not going to cuss, but it's, you like, can. it's scary. <laughs> it's BS. It's BS. Totally <laughs> BS. You know? So what do you want nutrition students? We, we had talked about counseling skills. That's something that, that some undergrad and grad programs are teaching, but that's one piece that we feel is super important. One thing that you mentioned too, that a lot of our guests and including myself, the way that I was sort of raised in this field is around psychologists, psychiatrists, other therapists and medical providers. So infusing ourselves like you with your binge eating disorder, that program, they were way ahead of their time. So ahead, so ahead. It was absolutely amazing to see. And actually, Dr. Stunkard was really the first doctor who who came up with the draft of what binge eating disorder is and the idea that it's a multidisciplinary, requires a multidisciplinary team approach, riffing off, of course, what we already knew about anorexia and bulimia. And his very wise observation was it's the kind of a lot of the same symptoms, but it's an overuse of food rather than an underuse. And hence, you know, taking that that same approach. But I think I think, I think your question, Beth, is what what do we need more of? Certainly counselling. And I would suggest also that because if we're going to be counselling clients around behaviour change in the pursuit of, of health goals, then you have to have that kind of psychological component to it. And we're trained from a medical model. So our, our def- uh, excuse me, not our default, our uh, weak points, our weaknesses are a lower lower amount of counselling training. And I would also suggest a little bit more psych training. And I think we should be trained in CBT and DBT and ACT. That's the alphabet soup. That's cognitive behavioural therapy, dialectical behavioural therapy, acceptance commitment therapy. Those are behavioural therapies. They're not process therapies, which means we as RDs can be trained in them in the same way that we've been trained in motivational interviewing. Motivational interviewing is wonderful, but it only gets you a certain, you know, any kind of has traction with a certain number of people and you need more tools in your box. So, you know, that's the sort of stuff that I'm training my RDs on at Balance. And and certainly that's been my training and I'm sure yours, Beth, over the last couple yeah. of decades, right, is yeah. filling, filling in all the gaps. Yeah, you know? I'm just highlighting this. And that's truly what this podcast is about, is to take all of that that's out there and to try to like a one-stop shop of, of ideas. If I'm going to focus in one area or another, here's, here's what I can do. And supervision, I think pulls all that together. Supervision is so essential. I mean, how can you do this work without it? You know, Mm -hmm. my biggest concern when I started was I, I do no harm. And because we don't have a strong psych background as RDs, I, I, I didn't know what I didn't know. So mm-hmm. going into supervision with a therapist who could guide me 
with my clients as to what to say here and what not to say and how to frame it and how to do this help me to feel less anxious that I might say something that might hurt my client and I wouldn't even know. So it was really around due diligence and protection of my client and, again, trying to fill in the gaps that our education doesn't give us yet. Yeah, yeah. Supervision is key. It is key. So tell us when we're talking about supervision and how you train your RDs at balance, tell us about balance. Oh, sure. So balance is my baby. It's an outpatient treatment center, eating disorder treatment center here in New York. We have a full day program, 30 hours a week, an IOP, which is an evening intensive outpatient program with Saturday programming. And then one night a week groups. Uh, uh, we have, I think we have four body image groups right now. We have two men's groups. We have an LGBTQ AI group that just started. And we have a food and mood group for clients who are more on the compulsive overeating or overeating spectrum. And then we have individual one-on-one nutrition services and therapy services and, of course, family therapy, et cetera. So a, a kind of a, an assortment of different services trying to meet the needs of the client in an outpatient setting. And then if a client is too sick for outpatient, then we refer to residential, which is 24-7 care. And I have to tell you, Beth, over the last year, we've seen just an onslaught of clients who've reached out to us about a fourfold increase, but many of them actually are just so sick that we needed to refer straight to res, you know. Mm, but I know is. that's pretty pretty common phenomena we've seen this last year. So, so that's balance. And I opened it 12 years ago. The reason I opened it, and I hope this is a, a shout out to the uh, RDs out there, I, a little bit of the backstory is I started my own private practice a couple of years after working with another RD and working in the hospital and, you know, getting all that kind of basic training for those first couple of years. I opened my own private practice and after about five, seven years in my private practice, we only had one outpatient eating disorder centre here in New York at the time and that facility started to get behind on the research and their their care was a little bit... um, punitive and 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 a little bit outdated and so I spent two years on their board volunteering my time with a number of other clinicians from the from the uh, community to try to you know it was the only place in town we needed it and unfortunately nothing changed so after two years we got together and it was suggested that someone needs to open a new place and Mm. I don't know how but that seemed to be what they wanted me to do <laughs> I'm like excuse I me know I, why. Don't know, I don't know anything about I'm running yeah. a treatment center you know so anyway yeah. uh, so the point of that story is I laugh now but clinical necessity it was out yeah. of clinical necessity I opened balance it was never something I even thought an RD could do mm. but there's an amazing there uh, an amazing RD out in California called Francie White Mm-hmm. Francie's been a mentor to me and she actually had been running her own day program out in California and I had heard about her by Carolyn Coston who's also a friend and mentor and I was like what she's an RD and she has a day program you can do that <laughs> and it only takes one it only yeah. takes knowing one other RD or one other person that you can relate to to see that well maybe mm-hmm. I can do that Mm-hmm. And so I, I hope, I mean, in my own humble way, I'm a little embarrassed, but I hope therefore hearing that I'm an RD and I have my own day program and outpatient treatment center, it might, it might inspire other RDs to know that, you know, the sky's the limit. There are no, there's no one saying you can't do that if that's something that you might be passionate about. So, so anyway, so 
12 years later, we're still hanging in. It's it's a love-hate relationship running your own business. <laughs> I have have a team of 30 staff who are amazing, RDs and therapists and our yeah. psychiatrist. It's it's not for the faint of heart running your own business, guys. It's it's no. a lot of scary, scary moments, making sure you keep your lights on and you know, yeah. that sort of thing. But it's my great passion. It's my great mm. passion. Thank you so much. I would love to work for you. Seriously. <laughs> well, here we are right here in the Midwest. I'm in Kansas City. Abby's in Dallas. But just your just just you at your person your person would love to align with you in any which way. So Abby, I know you want to check in with Melanie on how people can get a hold of her. Yes. And it- Beth said that she wanted to work for you. And as you were talking about your class, I was thinking, oh my gosh, I just want to be your student. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Me too, Abby. Let's sign up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Come on over next year. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. I'll be there. I've always wanted to go to New York. So, okay. Well, I, so I want to absolutely ask you where people can find you, but before I do that, taking yourself back to entering the field of eating disorders, what do you wish you would have known then that you know now? It's it's a loaded question, so take your time if you need. It's a great question too. And I'm <laughs> thinking back, and obviously we're very nervous when we start our careers, but I think I, I wish I had known that no one else knows what they're doing around nutrition. And also I wish I had known that no one else knows what they're doing around eating disorder training. We all have to figure that out and find that ourselves. But particularly the nutrition piece, I think I was, because we get trained in the hospital, in the hospital there's a hierarchy. And usually the RD I found was at the bottom of the ladder and very honestly kind of overlooked. And when I started working with the multidisciplinary team, I don't think I realised how important my voice, my voice meaning the nutritionist's voice is in that equation. And that's what I love about the field as well. It's a very, very equal relationship between the therapists and the nutritionist. They're as essential for recovery, both as essential. And so I think I didn't know all that. And so I think I lacked a little bit of confidence in, in speaking up. Fortunately, I worked with some wonderful people. So, you know, I don't think I ever felt bullied or anything, but I wish I had known. And I tell my students this all the time now, no one else has seven years of nutrition training like we do. No Mm. one else. They might've had one class of 40 hours if they're lucky. Mm. So you are truly the expert, even though you may feel that you don't know much when you're just starting out. So not to be arrogant, of course, but to also uh, own your space. It took me a little while to realize that. And then, and then I really owned it. (laughs) I tried to. (laughs) Well, Well, it's essential for the client's care that we speak mm -hmm. up is what I mean by that. And that's good to hear. And I'm hoping that any other newer professional in this field get is hearing that as well because you we do feel like okay I have to know everything I'm supposed to be a professional now so it's nice to know that you know you can ease your way in and then you have supervision and that makes a big difference and all of these great things so well where can people find you and reach out to you balance has a really cool website with an, an incredible blog so what what are your handles yes our handles are our website is balanced tx.com that's balance with a d tx.com and 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 our handles are balanced tx on insta and and also we have a youtube channel where we did an enormous number of free webinars over the last 12 months with covid 
So for those who maybe want to learn more, there's a real great resource channel for you there as well with everything from GI issues and eating disorders to LGBTQ to even we did one around sports and and activity and eating disorder recovery. So definitely check those out and we'd love to hear from you. Great. I mean, I love that. Is your diversity in dietetics on there too? That there was an amazing, yeah. I mean, if for, this is a huge shout out to all things Melanie Rogers and what she does in balance, but she does some, some coffee talks and she does these, the diversity and dietetics. There were like a thousand people around the world signed up for it. I think 600 showed up. I was among them. And so it's super, super, super just, it just kind of gets my blood pumped. You know, I'm just like all excited to see the numbers of people show up to get this kind of message. Yeah, absolutely. And a shout out there to the anti-diet dietetic students that we supported. We're supporting that particular new organization that was started from a group of students, uh, I believe here in New York. So Balance is is helping to sponsor them just to get them up and and going. And that's the panel that you're referring to there, Beth. It was unbelievable. A thousand people signed up for that one panel Mm. webinar. So it just speaks to how many nutrition students are really frustrated and seeking out more information. So that's a group that I would also recommend they check out. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you both. What a pleasure it's been. I wish we could talk all day. I know. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) So lovely, Beth. Thank you. And Abby, so lovely to meet you today as well. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at bethherald.com slash professionals.